This is episode one of the Capital Commute podcast with retired NBA champion and local Indianapolis real estate broker, Scott Pollard. It is about trying to figure out, uh, at least educate yourself a little bit about a market, a local a location. You don't have to know everything about the whole Indianapolis area. Maybe just your five square blocks of where you want to live. Get to know about all about that and focus on that because that's all you need to know. Welcome to the Capital Commute Podcast, where we talk about investing in the heart of Indianapolis with an array of real estate investors. If you want to learn more about real estate investing in Indianapolis, you've come to the right place. All right, so we're happy today to have Scott Pollard as our guest. So Scott was a former NBA champion, played in the NBA for a handful of years, I think 10. 11. 11. Yes. Once, as they say in Spanish. Yeah, there you go. So then he was on the Survivor. He, uh, he lives in the Indianapolis area up in West Clay. Uh, so Scott, great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Awesome. So, I mean, maybe... You kick it off, tell us a little bit more about yourself other than the, the general cool headlines. Well, now, uh, this is not the cool headlines. This is uh, my next career. I'm a real estate broker for Encore Sotheby's. Uh, it's, it's cool in a different way. It's just not the status of uh, quite the NBA status, you know. Uh, I don't get to fly on private charter planes anymore and get food 24 hours a day served to me. <laughs> but uh, my wife is a, is a pretty good chef, so that works out pretty well for me. I'm spoiled. But uh, no, I'm an I'm a agent, as I said, for Encore Sotheby's. I have a partner uh, named Joe Kempler, who's been in the business for a long time, and he's been a mentor to me. Uh, we have our own little group here in the, in the village of West Clay. Uh, but we specialize uh, there in, in the village, but also um, all over Indianapolis. Um, there's, there's 8,000 agents uh, around that in, in uh, the Indianapolis area now. And uh, if the numbers finish out in 2019 the way we think they will, Joe and I should be in the top 200 of those oh, agents. Wow. So uh, mostly Joe, um, I've only been doing this for a while, uh, but uh, my total transactions for the year should be uh, pretty good for, for a first year person. I, I know the average is around a million uh, for, for agents, uh, not just first year, but anybody. Uh, and I'll be well above that uh, with the transactions that I've been able to process this year. So uh, pretty excited about getting started in it and uh, continuing in as, a, as a real estate broker. And um, I've really enjoyed getting to know more about the city and more about the, the locations where people want to live and all that kind of stuff as well. It's been a, quite an education and uh, I already liked Indianapolis and I'm liking it more and more all the time now because of becoming more familiar with the city. What drew you to that area? and? Uh... How did you make that shift into, um, you know, in, into your role with Sotheby's? Well, uh, what drew me to the West Clay, the village of West Clay, was actually uh, just really, I've, I've bought and sold houses in, in five, six different states from the NBA and, and Kansas from college. Uh, so I've had a lot of personal transactions and never really capitalized <laughs> on it as a, as a broker. I just keep going around and around and, and uh, you know, buying and selling some commercial stuff as well. And uh, a couple of years ago, I thought, you know what, this is, I, I really should just get into this. I, I should stop paying commissions. Uh, <laughs> so um, that was part of why I got into it. But uh, also, uh, I've just got a big network of people and, and worldwide, and that's why the brand uh, Encore Sotheby's works for me because it's an international right. brand. Uh, people have heard of Sotheby's. I don't have to explain, well, it's a real estate company. Um, you know, like some of the other companies are here, they're, they're only in Indiana. Uh, you know, they're big here, but uh, they're only here. And uh, so I call somebody out in California for a referral or to give them a <laughs> referral. And they're like, who's that again? You know, so uh, I think that's why Sotheby's uh, spoke to me. But the village specifically, 
Um, my wife and I were, were bouncing around. This is my sixth house uh, in Indiana since 2003. Uh, we tend to move. And uh, so uh, we were looking around and trying to find a house in the right price range, and we just couldn't find one. And I said, you know what, after I got divorced, um, I lived, at, I rented in the village of West Clay in those apartments there right by the meeting house yeah. on University Green, which is kind of the main area, and uh, really enjoyed it. There's, there's summer concerts, and there's all kinds of you know, unique community events. There's parks everywhere for kids. Uh, 5Ks, I saw yeah. you at the Run 317. That, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, the Run 317, that's going to be an annual thing now. 2,000 people came into the village. And, that was a lot of fun. And uh, our office is right there. Joe and I's office, we have a little office right there next to Danny Boy, which is kind of the, the Tank 13 building uh, that's more recognizable. But we're right next door to it, and then we have our little blue sign and a little office. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a great location. And uh, long story short, that's why we ended up building in the, in the community, and then uh, when I started getting into the real estate thing, I started interviewing companies and people, and Joe and I just hit it off, you know? We both live in the village, and, and we both uh, uh, tout the village, and, and, and are experts on the and, and what's going on in the village, mostly Joe, again, gotta give credit where credit's due. Uh, but um, it's, uh, as I said, we don't just deal in the village. Joe is, is very centrally located there, and, and is wired. And has given me a few, uh, you know, tidbits of his business uh, in there, uh, but I'm I'm all over the city because I've got some builders that are working for me, that are with me, not for me, uh, looking to, to buy land and, and build on it. So I've I've got a little bit more of a Indianapolis uh, presence than Joe, uh, but we we make a great team because of that because he his focus on the village and and we both live there and, and love there and we get to be able to walk around the neighborhood unlike some uh, some agents. Uh, well, we walk around the neighborhood with our head held high, yeah. and, and we don't mind looking our neighbors in the, in the eye and knowing that, that we've serviced our clients to the best of our ability, and we don't feel like we've done anybody uh, in a bad way. And I know that there's some agents that maybe live in the village that uh, they don't have that ability. They'll, they'll right. cross the street when they see one of their former clients coming by, and they're not getting the referrals that we get. And uh, I know that sounds like braggadocio, but um, <laughs> when it's true, it's true. When it's true, bragging away, yeah. So let's let's kind of flash back to your. Um, you know your previous career in the NBA so you're um, you know in real estate now um, you're up in West Clay so like at what point like was re was real estate ever really on your radar uh, no, other it, than just like you know you needed a place to live during your, your career real, as I was saying early on um, real estate wasn't really uh, something I was planning on getting into as a broker anyway and, I, and I've made investments in the past uh, but really it was just busy doing so many other things that I just thought, you know, I don't have time to be an agent also. And um, obviously that's changed uh, and, I, and I've made the commitment, the time commitment to become an agent and, and to work at it. And uh, it's been very uh, fulfilling uh, as another career. But, um, you know, when I was, when I was younger, I, I guess the only thing I could say really, truly, honestly about this is that I wish that I had done this earlier. Uh, when I had more money, you know, <laughs> uh, when I was younger, uh, because real estate is a young person's game. And I think that's the point of why I wanted to be on this is to, to help younger people, the generation behind mine, to understand that, yeah, renting is fine for now and the landlord takes care of everything and it's intimidating to buy property. But if you can get over that hump and make that investment, it's a young person's game right. because it will appreciate. It's cyclical, of course, there's ups and downs. Uh, in five to ten years, but if you can get into the real estate business at a young age and you start owning property 
and you're renting it out, it's something that you, if you can get that done in your early 20s or late 20s or early 30s, man, you're talking about an early retirement because right. you can really do well when property appreciates, and it always does. Uh, but when you're 60 trying to buy a property and you're thinking about a 20-year investment, that's a little different than when you're 20 or 25 yeah, it pretty, or 30. It gets pretty morbid at that point. Right? Right? Yeah, and right. then you're just like, well, let's put it in the trust for the kids. Uh, and, and that's also financial planning, and that's intelligent planning. And we talk Not about, as fun, though. It's so yeah, we, we talk to some of our clients are in that situation. And, and so that's not a bad thing. It's you know thinking about the next generation of your children and their children. Um, but uh, to take a little bit of a swing on something that you know is going to appreciate during your lifetime uh, is something that, that all people should consider. If you're under 40, uh, it's, it's one of the safest things you can do because you just never know what's going to happen with politics. You never know what's going to happen with the market. You never know what's going to happen with this or that. They're not making any more land. Mm, and right. I know that sounds... Uh, you know, obviously we're in the, our little echo chamber here. We're all on the same team. Uh, but, I like that echo chamber. <laughs> Start calling it that. But it is true because uh, the younger you are and the younger I was when I, I wish that I had jumped into this uh, at a younger age and purchased more real estate uh, as, as a, at least an investment uh, that wasn't something that was my main nest egg but something else to, to have in, in my portfolio, uh, it would have been... I would have enjoyed that and, and, and uh, been able to capitalize more on that as a, as a mid-40s guy now. Yeah, so when we were, a couple episodes ago, we interviewed a guy named Matt Schiltz. He's a former Butler quarterback and plays in the CFL. And uh, I thought it was pretty surprising when he told us that his, like, you know, they're super busy and, you know, he's trying to actively look at real estate opportunities. And he's, like, texting me in between practice, um, like, hey, have you seen this property? But he told me that, like, even on – CFL team like the players in the locker room there's like a group of them that are like actively meeting talking about real estate investments and wow. I thought that was pretty interesting like did you experience because kind of tying back into people at a younger age like in your in your uh, and really how that can translate to our, our listeners and kind of the point I'm getting at is I know that even the busiest people like even people that are like professional athletes you know a lot of times and you you know you it just so happened that you know you were more focused on your career it sounds like when you were you were playing but even some of those younger athletes are taking the time to invest in real estate. And a lot of those people, I think, are doing that. Um, you know, they're kind of shattering through the misconception that if you're investing in real estate, whether it's a, you know, if it's a rental property in particular, like you can have people help you do that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do all of it yourself. Well, and, and that's the thing is that's where an agent can come in and help you out. You, you make the investment, you own the property, but then you hire somebody like myself or Joe to right. manage the property for you because that's what Joe has a lot of properties that he manages. Uh, and I'm, I'm not into that yet, but I can do that. Yeah. And what if they said, what if, you know, what if they came to you and said, well, hey, okay, you can help me find a place, you can help me manage it, but I'm looking for something where I want to rehab it and I want to force some equity. And I'm assuming, you know, your, your network, your extensive network, you'd probably have people to reference there as well. 100%. Actually, on Monday, I'm taking another couple down uh, to a Delaware property. Yeah. And with that in mind, with an architect, uh, I have a couple builders that I work with regularly, and we just built our own house. Uh, my wife was instrumental in that design. Uh, well, she's not licensed, but she was uh, very much uh, involved in the design and the interior of our house and, and some of the exterior features while well, she's not an architect. But um, we absolutely do that uh, to help people that, you know, maybe want to make an investment but don't really know much uh, about how to do it or how to make that, that dream come, become a reality. And, and uh, it's, it's something that I love, and that's more what I'm planning on 
doing as a, as a broker is helping people with remodels or, or building a home because uh, I absolutely love doing it and I just don't want to keep doing it for myself. <laughs> like I said, this is my sixth house in Indiana and I don't know if I want to go to 10 in the next five years. So um, I'm hoping that maybe we can stick in this house for a while and build some other people's houses or remodel some other people's houses and get that, that creative uh, energy out that way. Awesome. So Scott, I mean, like you said, Kansas, you know, you lived in California. You've lived quite a few places. You know, I don't think your longest tenure on an NBA team was with the Pacers, was it? No, I was five years in Sacramento with okay. my longest team. So then, you know, looking at the tail end of your career, what was the what was the moment that you said, "Hey, I want to take my family and I want to or plant my roots," essentially for the first time in in Indianapolis as a as a post NBA professional. Well, um, it, it wasn't actually a, a conscious choice, really. I, <laughs> Hoosiers don't like hearing this, but the, the fact of the matter is I'm from uh, California, but I consider Kansas home. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Kansas and uh, always had a house there. After my rookie year, I bought a modest house there uh, as an investment uh, to make sure that no matter what happened in my MBA career, I could afford that house. Uh, and so that's what I did and uh, had it paid off within a few years, and, and that was a, a nice little part of my portfolio but it also was a home uh, network every summer that's where we went uh, and then uh, when my career ended in 2008 uh, my basketball career uh, we actually had some land in Kansas as well we were gonna go build on that and we went out there and started with the design and got all the plans together and we we're about to break ground and my now ex-wife said I can't live here and so we ended up moving back to Indiana our house here hadn't sold uh, we had priced it a little too high and uh, it hadn't sold, so we moved back here, and uh, the marriage fell apart. And uh, I have joint custody of my children, and there's nothing in the world that would make me leave this place uh, while my kids are minors. And uh, so uh, my wife and I now are, are married. We've been married for almost six years. She's from Colorado. I, as I said, I consider Kansas home. Uh, when my youngest from my first marriage is, is out of his house, who knows? We may we may end up moving west, uh, but we may stay here because uh, you know where we live just got voted the best place in the country to raise a family for the second year in a row. So it's hard <laughs> to argue our public schools are better than most private schools, yeah. uh, and, and, the, and the cost of living is is great, uh, much cheaper than Colorado. Colorado is turning into California very quickly, and, and uh, so it's every time we go back home to visit her, her my wife's family, man, it's just tough. The traffic there is getting terrible, and it's such a, a it's, it's almost spoilt. It's almost a place that you just don't really want to go and live anymore. And the locals, or her family is kind of saying the same thing. They just, their school systems aren't that great. And there's a lot of crime in some of the areas. And it's just, they haven't done a really good job with the infrastructure and dealing with all the people that have moved in there. Uh, but at the same time, property value has just skyrocketed. It's mm-hmm. so expensive to live in Colorado now. So in Kansas, mm, there's a you know a kind of a lateral kind of cost of living and quality of life there in Lawrence, Kansas, which is where the university is. That's where I consider home, not Kansas City, but Lawrence. Uh, but at the same time, the public schools there aren't that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we do love here, and, and we're planning on being here indefinitely and, and uh, so as I said it wasn't really a conscious <laughs> yeah, decision yeah, no. uh, but more of a lo- the way life just works out and, and uh, I have no complaints we absolutely love living here and, and we've really in- ingratiated ourselves in the community and, and we love living in, in Indiana yeah as someone who's lived in Kansas as well like Overland Park you know mm-hmm. when I was younger as well and there's a lot of similarities so I can see why you've kind of like found the home and the roots there yep. you know, Carmel and Overland Park not too yeah. dissimilar well, I mean Indianapolis that yeah, it's a Midwestern town, and you can really plant your roots here, like 
you said the schools. Uh, the Midwest, eh, I have <laughs> issue with that term. When people, Hoosiers don't like hearing this either. I'm sorry, Hoosiers, but this isn't the Midwest. Is, it's not it? 1850. There's 50 states now. You know, there's California and New Mexico and Colorado. You know, that's the Midwest over there, by the way. The, the, the Midwest is maybe Kansas. But really, the Midwest would be like the mountain towns, right? I mean, yeah. if you're thinking geographically correct... We're east of the Mississippi. We're in the eastern time zone. If anything, this is the Middle East of America. Yeah, that's not going to work <laughs> out with Hoosiers. <laughs> Sounds like we just pushed the, pushed the Kansas button on you there. Well, it's, it's that, that but also, Kansas you know, direction? I'm a history guy. My, my major, I was going to teach high school history. That was my degree. I, I was a few credits shy of my master's, and, and uh, I didn't do the student teaching. But otherwise, I'd be a high school teacher. That stupid MBA got in the way. Um, <laughs> But uh, so that's kind of my nerdy, uh, you know, I like history, I like books, and, and I read boring ones, and, and so that's why I'm like, hey guys, um, yeah, it's 2019, there's 50 all of those states, plus Puerto Rico, if you want to count them too, and uh, yeah, geographically speaking, we're in the northeast corner of this country, I don't see how anybody can consider this the Midwest. Now, mentality, I will give you, it is a Midwest mentality. Yeah, but even like, Chicago. I feel like people always tie the Midwest mentality as like oh, the yeah. nice people that open the door for you. And I'll get you that. I'll, I will totally agree with that. It's a mentality, yes, that, that I'll agree with. But geographically speaking, we're in the northeast corner of this country. You know, it's it's definitely not the Midwest. That's fair, fair. enough. That's fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> he has a good. You made a good argument. So, um, anyway, so usually what we like to do um, is focus in maybe on like a particular investment that you've made. If you don't mind, like, you know, you share as much or as little of the particular financial details as you want. Do you have a, you know, whether it was a personal residence that you've maybe since sold, or do you have anything you'd want to hone in on? I'll talk about a mistake. Mistakes yeah. are good. You know, let's Let me talk about a mistake. Let's do it. It was completely out of my control. Okay. Uh, I'm going to admit a mistake that myself and my financial advisor made years ago. This was uh, before the crash. Uh, it was about 2003 or four. And uh, an opportunity arose with a, with a big company in Colorado, actually, Denver-based uh, sports agency uh, that had a, a, some uh, private financial investors as well as uh, athletes. And they uh, got together and they were like, hey, why don't you go down to the Turks and Caicos? And let's look at this island and we're going to buy this island. We're gonna put it already a, sounds wild. And we're going to put a Ritz-Carlton on it. Wow. So we're talking about Marriott, who owns Ritz-Carlton, is, is our other partner. And the, uh, the company that was going to fund all of the, the, the money, uh, besides the, invest, the investor side, was uh, the Lehman Brothers, one of the largest corporations in the whole world. So we're thinking, this is a pretty good deal. We went down to the Turks and Caicos. And when, when was this? This was, I think, 2003 or 2004, with an estimated completion date of 2008 or 2009. And we bought the island of West Caicos, the whole island. And it was vacant. There was nothing there except an old airstrip, which they were used, used to use for drug running. Hmm. Uh, and even before that, uh, there was a little cove in there, and I've seen the carvings in it from like the 16s and 1700s. Because wow. uh, it used to be for pirates, too. They used to hide their booty on that little island. It was a little, it's a small island, but big enough. So they built a, a, a marina that could hold up to a 200-foot yacht. Uh, and they had some of the, the infrastructure built, the, the, the swimming pool was poured, and two of the model rooms were finished. Like, I went, walked in, and it was beautiful. Ritz-Carlton finished on the land. Now, the landscaping wasn't done, and then the crash happened. And Lehman Brothers, of all the companies in the whole world, didn't get a bailout. 
and they cra- and they failed. And of course, Ritz Carlton Marriott was like, mm, "This is a tiny little piece of ours. We're we're done." Um, so the group I'm a part of still has a, about 150 million dollars of equity because we still own this this island. But um, uh, a couple of Russian guys came in and bought out Lehman Brothers. They they were over 300 million, and the the Russians bought them out for about 150 million. And so, yeah, I'm sitting, and I'm, and now I say we, I'm like point zero 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 one percent. I did not put in that much money, and it didn't kill me financially. But yeah, I mean, that's that's one of those things that you think that's a slam dunk. And to put it in basketball terms, you're thinking Lehman Brothers, Marriott, one of the biggest hotel chains in the world, owns Ritz Carlton. They're going to make a beautiful resort. They they flew me down. We drove around this yacht. They showed us all this this land, and we drove. I mean, and it was well on its way. But then that crash happened. So, uh, a warning, I guess that you'd say, is there is no such thing as much as I would say. You know, real estate is a young person's game, and it it, it, is, it will come back. I do believe that this will come back. But if I was sixty and I made that in, that investment, uh, I'd be sitting here sweating bullets right now. Oh, going, yeah. oh my gosh. I'm never going to see this completed. Now, hopefully one day, these Russian guys decide to get off their butt and finish the project and make us a hotel, uh, but we don't know. And until then, we're just sitting there, and they can't do anything without us, and we can't do anything without them uh, because of the amount of money that's involved on, on both sides, but neither side can do anything without the agreement of the other. So we're kind of waiting on that one. But, you know, locally, uh, in Kansas, I made a great investment. I bought a condo there. Uh, and I was tra- planning on holding on to it for the rest of my life, and then somebody came in and said, hey, I'll pay you this much for this condo. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, but I asked them to put a, uh, uh, there's a clause in it, there's a lien on the property that if they ever do go to sell it, I have to be the first one to be notified, and I have to have a chance to buy it back. Because oh, I do that's kind very of miss, cool. I've never, yeah. I've never heard of someone doing that. You can do that in uh, um, uh, pretty much anything. I mean, it, it's it's more typical when it's government involved. Uh, governments can put uh, restrictions on, on titles or deeds. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, if if the buyer will agree, you can kind of put. I, I've heard of like there. doing like a first right of refu- refusal, but it sounds like yeah. with that, it's it's actually a lien on the it's, the title. Yes, and actually they they moved it, which basically means they're never going to sell it, but they moved it to, into, a, uh, into a trust and they had to notify us. And so we got a legal document that we had to sign off on that said it, that this property moved from their personal names into a trust, which again, probably means they're just going to pass it on to their yeah. kids. So, so with the same rule, that still apply? But yeah, it yeah. still it still applies that if, if the property does ever go up for sale, they cannot uh, enact a sale without notifying us uh, and giving us a chance to buy it. But um, you know, that was, I've been very fortunate that Besides the Turks and Caicos investment, all the houses that I've purchased and sold over the years, I've made money on, uh, and I would say that that is a product of luck and, and good timing, as much as me knowing where is a good place to buy. Right. Uh, but specifically Sacramento, for example, just a quick story about that. I built a house there, it was my third house there uh, in Sacramento, and the Katrina happened in 2007. Mm-hmm. Now, I had sold this house in 2003 when I got traded to the Pacers, but when I sold it, I made a lot of money on it because it, it was booming. This area was booming. Well, then Katrina happened, and all of a sudden, levees around the country were starting to be graded. Well, Sacramento's a valley. It's below Folsom Lake. If that dam breaks, Sacramento is flooded. And not a lot of people know that. Well, there's levees that protect the city, much like New Orleans is protected by levees because it's just barely above sea level, and it's below all those mountains and, and lake. And uh, so those levees all got downgraded, 
in Sacramento and the property value plummeted. And the house that I sold for a million dollars is still right now just barely around 900,000. Wow. And it was down in the 700s. And, and the owners of the team, the Maloofs had houses in that neighborhood. One of my other teammates, Mike Bibby, had a house in that neighborhood. I mean, it was a really uh, strong neighborhood right by the airport, right by the old arena. And uh, the, it's, it's a great area still, but it's just one of those things that, you know, outside of your control, again, good timing. If I'd have waited two more, three, three more years and tried to sell that place, I would have taken a bath. But so. I think two things I pulled from this. The first is, you know, there's going to be, you're going to have investments that are going to go really well. You're going to have the ones that are the Turks and Caicos Island crazy <laughs> deals that maybe don't go as well. But I think the biggest piece there is that if you're taking action consistently, uh, you're learning from some of those mistakes and even taking those learning lessons from the successes, I think that's the biggest key. Um, and then the other piece I think is that just the timing about where you you know, personally are in life. Like if you're 60, 70 years old, you know, the Turks and Caicos deal, definitely not for you, even if they're taking on the, taking you on the yacht and showing you all the, the good times. But, um, you know, as long as you're personally self-aware of like what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish for yourself, your family, I mean, I think action is what, uh, what drives the success. Well, it's, it's action and it's your threshold for risk as well. And, and I think that's what uh, is intimidating to young investors and it's something that they, they do need to educate themselves on, on what's your threshold? You know, what, what, what are you willing to take on? What are you able to take on, first of all? And then what are you willing to take on as far as, is this gonna keep you up at night if this doesn't go well? Right. Um, and so you take off a little bite, you, you bite a little bit, and, and you think, okay, I can handle this. I can buy this little, you know, or maybe me and a partner can buy this little property and we start renting this out, and then maybe we can leverage that into another one. And I think that's what people need to think about. It's not like, hey, I'm just going to go to the craps table and put it all, you know, and try <laughs> to roll it. Think of, I think. And, and it's not that. It's it is about learning, like you said, and it is about trying to figure out, uh, at least educate yourself a little bit about a market, a local a location. You don't have to know everything about the whole Indianapolis area. Maybe just your five square blocks of where you want to live. Get to know about all about that, and, and focus on that because that's all you need to know. You don't need to know everything about everything. Uh, and then you start learning more about uh, the, the rest of the, of the business as you get into it. But it is something that doesn't take up all your time. And there's people like myself and my partner, Joe Kempler, that can help you along the way. Right. Yeah, and if you yeah, become an expert in, in you know, something very focused, and there's going to be people like yourself. You know, you're trying to invest down here in Sobro on rental properties, but you want to live up in West Clay. Perfectly fine. For a house up there and you know become an expert down here. Well very cool. So I think I think this is a good time to transition into our uh, stuck in traffic uh, stoplight speed round. All right. Um, I think we're gonna change it up a little bit. I'm all for it. Alright, so first question for you. What is your favorite this could be a big story too, so if you have to like paraphrase it. Like, what's your favorite NBA memory from, uh, you know, not like the corny, you know, this is my retirement day or whatever, but like, what's the coolest memory you have from your, your NBA career? There, there's a lot. I think, um, obviously, winning an NBA championship. I, w I wasn't uh, as much of a part of that team as I wished. I, I played hurt until like I couldn't the Celtics play. Celtics yeah, my 0708, right? 08 was my last year in the NBA, as it turns out. Uh, I got hurt when I got to Boston, and I played through it because they were like, you're getting surgery. It's just a matter of if you're getting surgery now or later. 
And I thought, you know what, I'm going to just try to make it through the year. I didn't make it through the year. In February, it gave out completely, and I had to get surgery. I was forced to get surgery, and that ended my, my season. turned out it ended up my career as well. But being able to get on um, that court the night we won it, I, I was wearing a suit, and I was still in a walking boot because I had both my ankles rebuilt. Um, the, the left one gave out, but then the right one was just as bad, so I ended up doing both of them since my career was over anyway. And uh, so I limped back into the locker room as the game was winding down, knew we were going to win, and I changed out of my suit and I put on warm-ups, like the, the, the NBA champion warm-ups. And uh, so I, we, we limped, I ran, I shouldn't have been running, but I was like, ah, whatever, my career's over, who cares? So <laughs> I ran back out to the court, it was Brian Scalabrini and I were both in, in suits, but then we went and switched into our warm-ups. And uh, we went back out on the court and I was able to say, he's now 12. Uh, but my little son at the time, he was my youngest, and uh, he was about uh, nine months old at the time. Oh, wow. And being able to take him out on the court was a pretty cool memory. Uh, and I've got a couple pictures of him being on the court with uh, guys, and you know, people had cigars in their mouth. We hadn't lit them yet, but we had cigars <laughs> in their mouths. And, and um, it, it, that, that was a really fun, uh, culminating experience. And, and it is kind of the cheesy basketball question and answer. Uh, but at the same time, I was on a lot of teams uh, dating back to high school. That should have won it all. You, never you, did. And you made the playoffs all but one year, I believe. Every right? year from my freshman year of high school, all four years of college, and every year in the NBA except my rookie year, I was on playoff teams. We, we only have winners on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's why that, that ring is so special to me, is, is I do wear it not just for the Celtics, but uh, for all the teams I was much more a part of, uh, both on and off the court, uh, that didn't win it, that should have won. And so. Uh, it was a pretty cool experience, and, and all my kids were there. I don't mean to, to say yeah. that my daughters weren't there as well, uh, but I didn't pick them up and carry them out on the right. podium with me. I carried my little guy out. Yeah, I mean, it's truly like me, a so. once-in-a-lifetime type, um, type deal. Well, usually once-in-a-lifetime. Yeah. Some, some, some guys get multiple, but, you know, me and Charles Barkley have one thing. <laughs> I have a ring, and he doesn't. Oh, that's like, uh, <laughs> I have to send that clip to him. So um, next question, we'll, we'll, we'll call this the yellow light question. What's it like to play with LeBron James? Uh, well, when, I, when LeBron and I were teammates, it was like his fourth year in the league. I think it was 06, 07 uh, when I was in Cleveland. It was my year after here. Hadn't had a great experience uh, as a pacer, not because of the organization, not because of me specifically. It just wasn't a really good mix for me, I don't think. Uh, and so once again, uh, I was at a crossroads of life, and, and this happens uh, to everyone. And, and in my NBA career, there was a couple points in my career where I thought, eh, you know what, I'm done. And uh, I thought my career was over. And then I signed with the Cavaliers uh, and went out. Um, and, you know, LeBron at the time, 20, I think 20, 21 years old, yeah. uh, he was young still. And uh, he was a kid. And, and I was 32 believe at the time 31 32 and so you know there's a big age dis discrepancy there it doesn't seem like it now as a 44 year old but but when you're playing with teammates that are a decade younger than you you know he's talking about video games and I'm not talking about <laughs> video games uh, so uh, there was just differences there um, and he was not the guy he is now uh, mature wise or, or teammate wise or any of that and there was a bunch of us on that team actually they, they put together a veteran team to, to surround him to give him some of that that maturity, and so we're we're at the end of the bench. Not a lot of us are getting playing time. Daniel Marshall and David Wesley and me are sitting down there as, as ten year vets, going, "LeBron, you need to do this and you need to do that." And he's like, "Well, do, you guys got to tell the team to do this." And like, we're at the end of the bench. You're on the court. You have to be the one. I know you're only twenty or twenty one years old, but that was 
it's a long answer, but the, the truth of the matter is he wasn't a great teammate then, but it's not really his fault. He was the, one of the youngest guys on the team of a bunch of old dudes, mm -hmm. and, and we were in the position as, as, as very limited-minute guys to be leaders of that team on the court. We were leaders of the team off the court and in the locker room. But on the court, you got to have a guy that's out there that's actually playing, being the leader of your team. And, and so it wasn't a great experience being his teammate. Uh, in many ways, he was selfish. But it, again, he was, it was his age. Right. And, and he was still trying to figure out who he was as an NBA player and, and become the super uh, amazing player that he is now uh, and has been since. But uh, still, a, still really cool seeing him play and, and in practice. Just phenomenally talented guy. Um, and, and a good guy. I'm not saying he wasn't a good guy. He's just, you know, wasn't a great teammate. Uh, but I played with a whole lot of people that were really amazing and excellent teammates. So uh, to, to put him in, in, in that upper five or ten guys that are my favorite teammates would be pretty tough to crack that right. top ten because of some of the guys that I played with that were just excellent human beings and excellent teammates. So let's go to our green light question. Green light. We're going to like pull it back to uh, one of our common questions here. You mentioned uh, you like to read. Uh, earlier, so what, what's your favorite book right now? It can be any. I mean, it can be literally fiction if you want it to be. But <laughs> I rarely read fiction um, because I, I'm not really good with other people's imaginations. I've got my own, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I rarely read a fiction book. I I, I enjoy Dan Brown's books uh, because uh, there is a little bit of uh, fact weaved in and out. And if you're not familiar with Dan Brown, he's the guy that wrote. Uh, da Vinci's code mm -hmm. and uh, the digital fortress is, is an underrated one I think a lot of people didn't like that one but I like it uh, and, and angels and demons and all those but um, the, the thing I like about him his last one is about actually a, another uh, evolution where it seems like it actually could become a reality where AI gets infused into human uh, or humans get infused into AI uh, so we could live forever basically it's a it's a paraphrasing of the plot of the book but that's kind of what it is and I think that's a very realistic thing and so uh, I enjoy those books but really I, I read really boring ones I, I just finished uh, uh, time your history a biography yeah I finished a biography of Alexander Hamilton recently it was about a thousand pages and, and uh, exhausting exhausting to read that book and uh, I'll probably have to read it over again because it took me quite a while to read it and I've kind of forgotten most of it you know, was he a cool, uh, pretty cool guy? Or well, just the, the thousand yeah. pages. I mean, that's the the thing about um, when you when you start reading about people, you, you start reading about their imperfections, and you know you, you have this thing like, oh, he's the guy on the ten dollar bill, and he created the treasury, and he, you know, so many things he did, but then all of a sudden you're like, well, he did, he was a slave owner, mm -hmm. you know, and and so. Uh, it, I, my favorite president, the person I've read most about, is, or founding father, or whatever you want to call him, is, is Abraham Lincoln. We have the same birthday. I kind of look like him. Uh, <laughs> my mom says we're distantly related. I don't know, but uh, they, that ancestry.com. Yeah, but, well, they they're they're on there, and I think that's where they found out that there's some woman in the Northeast that that gave birth to a whole bunch of people, and, and uh, so we're in one of those branches with that, uh, Abraham Lincoln. But anyway. Uh, you know, he gets credit for freeing slaves and, and being a great president, but a lot of it was circumstantial. You know, you wonder if, if any other president had been in that same time period, probably would have done the same thing. I don't know. We don't know. We never will know if it was something that was just really, truly his belief from young age that he was going to free slaves and treat all people equal, or was he just being a dirty politician right. and going with the times like any other politician would have been to do to get reelected. 
uh, and, and we'll never really truly know the answer to that, but it's very likely that he was just a dirty politician like every other politician, uh, and, it, and was, it was basically a, a hero of the circumstance, a hero of the age, uh, but really, if it had been any of us as, as president at that point, we probably would have done the same thing because right. it was time to do the right thing. And it was the situation to do the right thing. Now, uh, a horrible person may have tried to, to delay it, uh, and it may have been delayed another few years, but really, honestly, it would have happened uh, when, when the right person was in charge. And yes, he's the right person, and he ended up doing the right thing and, and was a great, place, uh, great president for us and, and was murdered for it. Uh, for, for doing the right thing, but um, you know we'll never really know if he really was that great of a person, uh, or if he was just a, the, the beneficiary of being in the right circumstances at the right time, and now he's lauded as one of the greatest people that's ever walked on the planet. Pretty crazy what history can. Uh, yeah, it depends on who writes it. Portray right. Well, Scott, really appreciate your time. Um, it's been fun. Hopefully, we can have you on maybe in season two or three, or maybe even five if we yeah. can. Get this thing rolling out. So keep it rolling, it, man. Scott. Thanks for letting me talk. I'm good at it. I have lots of words. I don't know if I'm uh, really great at getting the words out, but I do enjoy speaking them. So thanks for letting <laughs> me awesome. chat and uh, had a good time, guys.